our um, study of the book of Matthew. We took a break um, before Christmas, and we will get back into Matthew um, after the much-anticipated part two of Pastor Tim's message, which will be coming up next week. Tim, you ready for it? We are, man. We can't wait to hear it. Um, And this morning, we are going to be in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, which is where we left off when last we were uh, in the book of Matthew. And we will read this morning uh, verses 15 through 21. And as we get into this passage this morning, we are going to see a short little story. It's um, It's an interchange between Jesus and a few groups of people who are here together. Uh, in Jerusalem, and we'll do our best to understand the setting and what's going on, and we'll look at the response of four groups of people who are here as part of this story, and how we might identify with those groups and sort of find our place there. So let's read Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, It's Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. Father God, thank you for your word. Please bless the reading of it this morning. Give us wisdom and insight. Illuminate uh, these words from scripture to our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to learn the message that you have for us. Help us to understand um, so that we can become more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, there's a lot of different terms and names in these few little verses this morning. We've got Pharisees, we've got Herodians, we've got Caesar. And I thought before we get into actually understanding the, the specifics of the story, perhaps it would be, take, be worth taking a minute to set the setting of where this story takes place. We know that when we read the stories in scripture, these aren't um, mythological places. This isn't a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This happened in history, right? So these are true stories. And the setting for this morning's story is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city. It's the capital city of the nation of Israel. And this happens at a point in time in 33 AD. So this is shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. So we're in the final days leading up to Jesus' death when he's teaching Uh, in the city of Jerusalem. And so to understand what's going on in this culture, in this day, how do you transport yourself to a moment in time thousands of years ago and understand what it was like? I mean, I don't know what the weather was like that day. I don't know if it was hot and dry. I don't know if it was dusty. I don't know if it was raining outside. We do know some things about what the world was like at that time and what the city was like. 
Jesus has spent a lot of his time kind of out in towns and villages. There's lots of recorded stories of Jesus walking along, teaching and training the disciples as he walks. But now he's in the city. And so he's in the capital city. So this is the seat of of power. It's where Herod has built his palace. Pontius Pilate is established here. Um, It's where the temple is and the Pharisees and Sadducees have set up shop. So he's no longer kind of out in the the suburbs, if you will. He's in the heart of where things are going on. So it's not a city like we're used to it. You know, there's not street lights and traffic. It's a very different day and age. And to help us go back to what was going on in the world in 33 AD, let's remember what was happening politically in the world around Jerusalem at this time. A huge thing has just happened. And the thing that has happened is Rome, the Roman Empire, has just become an empire. So for years, for centuries, Rome has been a republic, much like we live in a republic. It's ruled by a senate, but the senators rose up and killed Julius Caesar, famously, right? And then there's a split in the power in the Roman Empire. Um, Mark Anthony kind of goes to the east. Octavian goes to the west. Um, Mark Anthony kind of forms this alliance with Cleopatra in Egypt. Octavian kind of consolidates power in Rome. He declares himself emperor And he is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Okay, he changes his name to Caesar Augustus. Um, But as you think about the world around Jerusalem right now, there's this enormous power, multinational power, kind of running over all the other countries like a bulldozer. And there's multiple people kind of fighting for the controls of the bulldozer, right? So you've got emperors and wannabe emperors, and this empire is taking shape. And so when a, when a country, when a place goes from being a republic to being an empire, a lot changes. Like, can you imagine, like, you could think of it almost like um, Israel would be like Delaware and the Roman Empire would be like the United States, right? And can you imagine if, like, the United States suddenly said, oh, yeah, you don't get a vote anymore. We're not a republic. We're just going to appoint one person um, to be the emperor. And by the way, uh, they're sending the army to your town to make sure that you... Uh, obey and behave exactly what they say. It would be a terrifying thing. And so the world around Israel is kind of a scary place right now. It's changing dramatically. There's a layer of leadership between Rome and Israel, right? So where Israel is a very religious place, they're led by um, Pharisees who are well-respected members of the community, high priests, the Sanhedrin, Um, They have their whole religious structure, but there's this guy named Herod who has established himself as kind of a a king of the Jews. And what Herod has done brilliantly is that he has managed to make friends with Rome, make friends with Caesar, and also make friends with Israel. So he brought Israel from being a free independent nation, um, the first Herod did, Uh, under the rule of Rome. So they lost their freedom, they lost their autonomy, but they were then protected under Roman rule. Meanwhile, he goes to the people of Israel, and he raises their taxes to send their money to Caesar, um, but they recognize that he's kind of protecting them from some of the chaos uh, that's happening in the Roman Empire. He also, um, King Herod the Great, 
who was um, ruled right before Jesus was born, also helped to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So the temple that Jesus walked and talked in um, was actually, it was Herod. It was King Herod who helped to build that temple. We're going to talk more about Herod in a moment, but think of the Roman Empire, chaotic, lots of change, big, Israel, small, small nation, kind of in between all these big global superpowers of Rome and Egypt. Um, But it's within Israel that the Savior comes, that the Messiah comes, and that's where the truth is truly held. And in between Rome and Israel, you've got Herod, who set himself up as a king um, of the Jews. So it's in that setting, highly charged, very political, you you better be careful where your allegiances are, um, that Jesus steps forward onto the scene. And what is Jesus doing on the scene? Well, the book of Matthew tells us he's been teaching, preaching, and healing. And as he does those things, he's attracting a crowd. So he's getting a lot of attention as he goes. He's been going all throughout Israel, not just Jerusalem, teaching people about the kingdom of heaven, preaching that they need to repent and turn and follow God in a brand new way. And he's been healing people. He's kind of famous for his healing, these miracles that he does. And so Jesus has attracted a crowd. There's sort of a close crowd of people, the disciples, who follow him everywhere, want to learn everything from him. And um, there's also kind of the greater crowd, sort of people who are just sort of interested, who are watching, who gather around when Jesus does amazing things. Jesus comes uh, to Israel And he takes on this role of being like a rabbi. You guys heard that word before? Rabbi? You know that term? So there's this this kind of structure in religious life and is kind of baked into the education system in Israel at this time. Where a rabbi would be a teacher, almost like a, a college professor would be. And everyone in Galilee, everyone in, in Israel would learn the Torah. They would learn the Old Testament as they were growing up. It was kind of like their grade school. And those really promising students, the really sharp ones, the really bright ones, would apply, basically, to a rabbi to ask, can I follow you? Can I learn from you? Can I be more like you? And the rabbi would have all these people who wanted to be his disciples. Um, The word they used was Talmud. So all these people who wanted to be his Talmud, um, his disciples. And he would choose which ones he was going to accept to be his followers. And so when a, when a rabbi then would go to someone who wanted to be his, his disciple and would say, follow me, for them it was, like, it was like getting the letter from the college that you wanted to get into that says, you've been accepted. It's this prestigious thing. It's this honor. Now I'm going to follow this rabbi. And, and it's a radical thing to follow a rabbi. You leave your possessions behind, you leave your family behind, and you go follow the rabbi wherever he goes, not just to learn from him, but also to become more like him. That's the religious system um, in which all of this takes place. So there were a lot of different rabbis at the time, lots of different teachers, and they would go to public places, they would go to the synagogues, they would be in town, they would go to the temple, and anyone could come and approach them and ask them questions. And in fact, that has been happening many times throughout Jesus' um, teaching. We've seen lots of people coming up to him, asking to be healed or asking him to explain something that they didn't understand in the Bible, But there's lots of different ways um, in which we see this relationship between rabbis and teachers and then people coming to ask the rabbi the question. All right. So I hope that wasn't too boring of a history lesson for you. 
I, um, we'll, get into the, we'll get into the scripture now. But um, as I was researching this, I just became utterly fascinated with all the different aspects um, of what was going on historically, geopolitically, and how that impacts the story that we read. So in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees went in verse 15 and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. So here's the first of the four groups of people that are part of this story. It's the Pharisees. Right? And throughout the book of Matthew, the Pharisees have been coming to Jesus. We've most often referred to them as the religious leaders when we talk about them here on Sunday morning. Um, but the Pharisees um, have been coming and questioning Jesus. They've been asking him, wait, help me understand this. Why are you saying that? Because Jesus, you'll remember, spoke as one with authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone was amazed at Jesus' teaching because they said he speaks as one with authority. There were two different types of rabbis at the time, right? There were rabbis who were teachers of the law who just explained things that somebody else had already figured out. So they would repeat knowledge that already existed. That was kind of a lower level rabbi. Then there was a higher level rabbi, those who had the authority and the position and the wisdom to explain new interpretations, new knowledge, to establish new traditions. And Jesus comes in without having come through all the training that all the Pharisees had come through. He didn't have the the official credentials the way they wanted to have him, but yet he was clearly this higher-level rabbi. He was the type of rabbi who, who spoke and taught and gave new wisdom and gave new knowledge, and people were amazed by it. And the Pharisees were a little threatened by this. He wasn't part of their inside crowd. He was an outsider who had more wisdom and more connection to understanding the heart of God than they did. The Pharisees now are no longer coming to Jesus in this moment saying, I don't understand. Help me understand. Something has changed in their heart where they no longer are seeking to understand Jesus, they're seeking to take him out. Right? And so when that happens, they're not interested in playing fair anymore. They're not looking for a debate. Scripture tells us they went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. So their whole plan is to trip him up. They want to embarrass him, right? They want to catch him saying something that they can be like, ha, gotcha, that discredits you. So this isn't about understanding. This isn't about protecting people. This isn't about any good intention at this point on the part of the Pharisees. Although they're respected in the community in this moment, their whole goal is just to entangle Jesus, just to catch him and trip him up. And that's what they're after in this moment. They're not fighting fair. Why are they doing this? Well, we actually know this because of something that comes a little bit later in the book of Matthew. When the Pharisees bring Jesus before Pilate and ask to have Jesus crucified, which Pilate had the authority to do as the representative of Rome in the area, in Jerusalem, it says in um, Matthew 27, 18, that Pilate perceived the hearts of the Pharisees that they were envious of Jesus. So this is why the Pharisees want to destroy Jesus. They're envious. Jesus has attracted a crowd. Jesus has gotten the respect of the people in the community, but the Pharisees want the respect of the people of the community. They want to attract the crowd, and so they are envious of Jesus. Rather than taking the opportunity to learn from him, to recognize God's hand and God's power on his life, 
something goes rotten within them instead, and they become envious. Now, it's worth taking a minute to talk about envy and what envy does in our hearts and in our minds. Because it is the thing that motivates the Pharisees to kill the Savior of the world. Pharisees who spent their whole life studying the scripture, they know what the Old Testament taught about envy. They knew it was wrong, and yet they still fell victim to the sin. Traditionally, throughout history, the church has taught that envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Perhaps you've heard that. It talks about it uh, in the Old Testament. We'll look at that in a second. But here is the whisper of envy to our sinful heart. This is what envy says to us. It tells us, I deserve better. And anytime you find yourself thinking this, I deserve better. That's a root of envy trying to grow inside your heart. There are lots of ways this manifests. I deserve a better job. I deserve a better house. I deserve a better car. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve a better relationship. But we start to think, I deserve better. Proverbs describes it like this. Proverbs says that a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And if you've ever been in this spot of envy where you're just not satisfied, you just can't get the thing that's going to make you happy, then you know what it's like to feel that rottenness in your bones. Think of like a rotten tree, right? It's worms are eating it on the inside or beetles or bugs and it falls over. It's, it's like it crumbles in your fingers. It has no structural soundness. That's what happens inside of us when we live in envy. And when we want something that we don't have, we long for it, we search for it, it feels unfulfilled, and we feel like we would just be happy if we could just get whatever it is. Now, one of two things can happen when, when you feel this, right? When you believe, if I just had that, then I would be happy. The first thing, the most common thing that happens is that you don't ever get it, right? So you're always thinking, oh, I would be happy if I just had this, and it never happens in your life. Oh, if I just had that house, you drive by it, you see it for sale, you want to buy it. If I just, oh, my life would be complete if I had that house, and then someone else buys it. My life would be right if I could just marry that girl and someone else marries her. My life would be right if I could get that promotion and somebody else gets that job. And when that happens, when somebody else gets the thing that you think that is going to make you satisfied and happy, it no longer just becomes about, I deserve better. Now you start to think, they don't deserve that. He doesn't deserve that job. She doesn't deserve to have him. He doesn't deserve to drive that car. They don't deserve to live there. And if you find yourself saying those things, that's envy happening inside of you. And a lot of us, frankly, live our whole lives with unfulfilled expectations and, and like, we just never quite get the thing that we think is going to make us feel better. And we live with envy our whole lives. But there's another thing that happens, that can happen. And I understand it's more devastating when it happens to people. That is, that you can think, this is the thing that's going to make me happy. If I could just have that much money, if I could just have that job, 
And then you get it. And sometimes people acquire the thing that they believe will make them happy. But guess what? <laughs> that, that whisper of, I deserve better, doesn't change. It doesn't go away if you get the thing that you think you want. Because you still think you deserve better. And you got the brand new 2022, I don't know, car <laughs> that, that you were looking for. <laughs> right? F-150 Raptor. Okay? You got it. And then guess what happens? 2023 comes along and somebody's got the new model and they've got the better tires, (laughs) right? And so I deserve better does not change based on whether you actually get anything better or not. The lie of I deserve better is never addressed and satisfied by getting the thing that you think you need, the thing that you think you want. And so the thing to do is to, is to question the statement. Is it really true? that I deserve better. The Apostle Paul speaks to this really directly in Philippians 4. He says this, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Contentment, by the way, is the opposite of envy. So every, every sin has an opposite. Pride, um, the opposite of pride is humility. The opposite of envy is contentment. Um, and Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lots of us can quote the last part there. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But what Paul's talking about here is he's saying, whatever circumstance I find myself in, I can get through that circumstance. Why? Because I have learned the secret of contentment. You want to know the secret of contentment? I learned it too. I looked it up. (laughs) The secret to contentment is when you see that thing that you want that you can't quite get is thankfulness. It's gratitude. If I have gratitude in my heart, then I'm not thinking about the things I don't have. I'm thinking about the things I do have. And I'm not thinking about the house I want. I'm thinking about the home in which I live. I'm not thinking about the money I don't have. I'm thinking about my needs that are met. And I think that's why my mom always used to tell me, you know, count your blessings. Tell me five things you're thankful for. (laughs) Because when we want something we don't have, if we can speak gratitude to our own heart. And by the way, you do need to speak to your own heart sometimes. right? You need to tell your heart what to do. And it's okay to tell your heart to be grateful if you feel like you're unsatisfied. The other thing, by the way, that goes along with that gratitude is kindness, right? And so if I'm looking at someone and I'm saying they don't deserve that, if I can switch that to kindness, I can be happy for them that they have that. I obviously know that that's a super cool car. Like, why do I need to be mad at them for having it? I can be excited that they've got it. I'd be like, that's cool, (laughs) right? And so we can be kind. We can want the best for other people, not just want what's best for us. So the secret to contentment is learning to be grateful and wanting what's best for others, and that diffuses the power of envy. But the Pharisees never got there. They lived with envy, and so they were out to destroy Jesus. And so, what do they do? They plotted how to entangle him in his talk, and then in verse 16, they sent their disciples with the Herodians to Jesus. So now we bring in a second group of people. Wow, that's exciting. Can you go back? 
the slide that says Herodians on the top of it. So the Herodians are a group of people that um, were active in Israel at this time. We don't read a lot about them in Scripture. We read a lot about Pharisees. We read a lot about Sadducees. We read a lot about all these different groups of people, but we don't always read a lot about the Herodians. So who were the Herodians? Thank you. I appreciate it. So who were the Herodians? The Herodians are actually a political group. This is like a political party that was loyal to King Herod. And not just King Herod. Herod at this time was um, Herod Antipas. Before him was Herod the Great. After him was Herod Agrippa. So there's this whole family of people who are setting themselves up as kings over Israel. Let me tell you a little bit about who Herod was um, so you can understand what it meant to be a loyal follower of his. Um, He was the king, I told you that before, and he was a horrible human being. Herod the Great was incredibly insecure about his place on the throne. And so he was always looking for ways to secure his power a little bit more. So when he realized that he would be well served by marrying a Jewish woman in a position of power whose family was kind of tied in with the high priest, um, he recognized immediately, like, oh, I need to marry her for political reasons. Didn't matter, she was just a teenager, and he was already the king. He, um, he exiles his wife and three-year-old son, sends them away, to marry this teenage girl, um, and, like, to unify and consolidate his power. He sticks with her for about seven years, uh, during which she bears him five children, by the way. Um, and then he gets it in his mind that uh, at the age of 24 or something, She's out to get his throne. So naturally, he has her executed along with two of his sons. Um, He's big on public executions, by the way, Herod the Great. Um, And so when the wise men come to to Herod and say, hey, we've seen the star in the east. It foretells the coming of the newborn king of the Jews. It's not surprising how Herod reacts in this moment, right? King of the Jews, wait, that's my job. We're putting a stop to that. And so Herod just kills all the children under the age of three in Bethlehem just to make sure that he gets anybody who might be a potential rival. He was brutal. He was violent. At one point, um, there was a group of Torah students, like Bible students, um, kids, who did a protest at the temple because Herod had set up this like uh, Roman eagle in the temple. So the eagle was the, the emblem of Rome. and it was, They thought it was kind of sacrilegious uh, for for there to be like this Roman symbol in the center of Jewish religious life. So they went and knocked it over. So he had 40 of them executed. That's just kind of the way that Herod operated. Um, He was married seven times or nine times, um, and his his wives met bad ends. Um, And so it's his son, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, that is the one who has John the Baptist beheaded. Remember, he took his um, brother Philip's wife, um, and then he's seduced by his stepdaughter um, when she dances for him, and he says, I'll I'll give you whatever you want, and she says, bring me the head of John the Baptist. So so these these Herodian kings, right, these Herods that were ruling over Jerusalem are horrible people. They're terrible people. So how in the world can it be that there's people who are loyal followers of them. Here's why. They felt that because Herod was this like powerful ruler, remember he, he navigated this political 
uncertainty with Rome really, really well. He kept Israel kind of protected from the chaos of the Roman Empire. He allowed them to rebuild the temple. So they thought Herod would be the one who could deliver Jewish independence back to them. So they thought if they stuck with Herod, eventually he would lead them away from having to be subservient to Rome, and they could once again be their own sovereign nation. And so the Herodians, in this story, they join the Pharisees in the plot to entangle Jesus because of their politics. They have taken their politics and what they think is going to be best for Israel, and they've used it to do something that was absolutely wrong, which was to oppose the Son of God. And they missed it. They missed the point. No word on um, what kind of uh, signs the uh, Herodians put up uh, in their yards when it was election time or or flags or, or anything like that. But thank goodness we have left behind the days of when Christian people would align themselves behind horrible leaders um, for the sake of what they thought was best for their country. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. You know, I say that kind of delicately. But here's what happens when you follow someone as a leader. You end up kind of becoming like that leader. Right? And so even if I agree with someone's politics, but I don't like the way they live their lives, so I, so I vote for them. What happened with the Herodians over time is they started to take on Herod's lifestyle. Right? They became very um, amoral, loose. They had bad behavior, bad character, because they were following Herod, a person who set an example of bad character and bad behavior. And so we have to be wise, the kinds of people that we esteem and look up to, the kind of people, because we end up becoming like the people that we follow. So just be aware of that. Um, You know, when you put that star athlete on a pedestal, great. He's wonderful at throwing touchdowns. How does he treat his family? How does he treat people? Just be aware of who you put on a pedestal in your life, because you end up becoming like those that you emulate um, and those that you admire. So, so the Herodians, they join the plot to entangle Jesus because of um, their uh, politics. We also know there were two other groups of people here besides the Herodians. Um, this story is actually told in three of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. Luke tells us specifically that the Herodians um, were hoping to, or the Pharisees were hoping to entangle Jesus um, in front of the crowd. So we know there's a crowd of people here. And we also know Jesus' disciples are here. So these are our four groups of people, the Pharisees, the Herodians, um, the onlookers, the crowd, uh, and then, and then the, uh, the disciples. So those are our, our four groups of people that we're, that we're looking at here this morning. We know the disciples are there because they wrote it down, right? So when Matthew writes this, it's a firsthand account. He saw it happen um, along with a, a number of the other disciples. But let's, um, let's take a look at the crowd for a second. What's the crowd doing? They don't even factor into the story except for the fact that Luke tells us that they were there. And so the crowd is just kind of watching. They're just kind of listening. They're taking it all in. They're, they're paying attention, but they're not really getting involved in the story. And sometimes I'm like that with Jesus. 
I come into church on a Sunday morning. I'm listening. I'm paying attention. And I'm grateful that you guys are listening and paying attention this morning. Thank you. But sometimes we can just go, I'm not really getting involved. Just interested. Now, granted, this was a great show, right? Here comes a conflict. Pharisees, Herodians, Jesus. It's going down. Like, ratings are high. The crowd wants to see this, right? I imagine it's like, you know, Saturday morning and everybody's coming out of their houses to come see what's going on in the street outside the temple. I don't know if it was in the street outside the temple, but that's what I assume, right? So the crowd is gathered. They're interested, but they're not really getting involved in the story. And then you've got the disciples. The disciples, by the way, are doing the same thing as the crowd right here. It's the same outward behavior. They're also watching and listening, right? They're taking it all in. But what's happening inside of them is dramatically different. Where the crowd is interested but not involved, the disciples are attentive and fully committed. They have left behind their jobs, their homes, their families to follow Jesus for the last three years to be with him, to learn from him. They are invested and committed in what's going on in his ministry and in his life. Because remember, the job of the disciple, the Talmud, following the rabbi, is not just to learn from the rabbi, it's to become like the rabbi. And so the disciple's whole thing is to become more like Jesus as they follow him. Not just learn his teaching, but to be shaped to become more like him. Just like the Herodians were becoming more like Herod, the disciples are becoming more like Jesus the longer they spend with him. And so they are attentive and um, committed. By the way, I heard this, I thought this was, if you've ever wondered what the difference is between being involved in something and being committed to something, just look at your breakfast plate the next time you have bacon and eggs. The chicken was involved. The pig was committed. (laughs) That's terrible. You, you gave me that dad joke laugh, just so you know. <laughs> Evie laughs at me like that. She's like, ha, 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 dad. <laughs> um, so I, um, I recognize that when we come into church in the, in, on a Sunday morning, sometimes we can be involved. We can be interested. But are you actually committed to what's happening here at Townsend Church? We are here sharing the love of Christ in, commu- in our community and in the world around us. And many of you are actively committed to what's happening here. Praise God. There's lots of places you can be committed to God's work. You don't have to do it here at Townsend Church. There's lots of people, lots of places where you can share the love of God. But let me challenge you. Don't just be interested, impartial observer. Be involved. Be committed. Be fully committed. All right. So anyway, um, what they're committed to is to becoming more like Jesus. And here comes the question, right? Not an innocent question. We already know that. It's a trap, right? They're trying to entangle Jesus. And so they come in verse 16, and they, they get to their question. And here's what they're going to ask Jesus. By the way, when you want to entangle somebody in their talk, um, you know, the, the, the politicians are not a bad group to ask on how to do that, right? They have a good sense of where the pitfalls are um, and where you can get tripped up. And they come with a brilliant question to trap Jesus. They start with flattery and deceit. So before they even ask their question, they come out with this statement that they don't mean at all. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. They don't know he's true. They don't even believe him. But we know that you are true. You teach the way of God in truth. You don't care about anyone. You don't regard the person of men. They're saying, we know you're impartial. You can be trusted. You're objective. You're wise. 
So they're flattering him. They happen to be saying things that are true, but it's coming from a deceitful heart. They're sucking up to Jesus, right? They're, they're, they're trying to get on his good side. Tell us, therefore, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful? Now, here's why this is a brilliant question, right? Is that they're giving you an either-or. Do you pay taxes? Do you not pay taxes? By the way, the Jewish people did not pay taxes to Caesar. They paid taxes to Herod, who paid the taxes to Caesar for them. They kind of left that out because he's their guy, right? Are they like making it about Caesar? They're, they're appealing to the higher power with the way they frame the question. But if Jesus says um, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, yes, you should pay the tax, he's siding with the evil Roman oppressors. And all the people standing there who hate paying the taxes and don't want to be under Roman rule are going to go, you sell out. You're siding with power. You're supposed to be our, you're supposed to be a man of the people. So if Jesus says pay the taxes, he's against the people. And if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, he sides with the people. Now they've got him, right? Because now they can say, this rebel is trying to stir up an insurrection. And they can go to Pilate, they can go to Caesar, they can go to Herod and say, Jesus is telling the people not to pay taxes. You've got to kill this guy. So it's a brilliant question that they're asking him. And they're putting him on this dilemma where either answer he chooses is going to be the wrong answer. It's brilliant, right? They lay an excellent trap for Jesus. And Jesus' response to their question is told in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness. He saw right through them. He knew what they were up to. He wasn't fooled for an instant with all this, oh, teacher, we know how wise and impartial you are. And so he saw right through it. He recognized the trap coming his way. Matthew Henry says, a temptation perceived is half conquered. A temptation perceived is half conquered. So many times when we fall into temptation in life, we didn't even see it coming. But if you can know when the temptation is coming your way, you're halfway to resisting it. You're halfway to defeating it. If you can recognize envy starting to stir up in my heart, lust, pride, jealousy, if you can see the temptation coming your way to go after that, That's the moment to stop it. Once you know the temptation is coming in your life, recognize it, walk away from it quickly. Call out the name of Jesus in those moments. Step away from the temptation. Jesus is quick to go, I see what's happening here. And by the way, look how Jesus answers. Um, As he starts to answer their question, the first thing he says is, why do you test me, you hypocrites? So they come to him with all this like flattery and nice language and stuff they didn't mean at all. Jesus has none of that. He cuts right through all of that. And he speaks plainly and directly to them. He knows it's a test. He calls it a test. And he says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? The word hypocrite is a common part of our language um, now. We know it means somebody who says one thing but does a different thing. So it's someone who... Um, you know, stands and says, well, I think you should always do this, but then, always be honest, but then they're, they're deceitful in their own life, right? So somebody who says one thing publicly and does a different thing privately, that's a hypocrite. It's actually a new word, a new term at this time. 
Um, and the New Testament is one of the first times that it's actually used um, in history. It's a Greek word, uh, hypocrite. And what it means is it's an actor, right? It's somebody who would do like street performances of like dramas or comedies, right? So, you, so maybe you've been somewhere like at a, a carnival or, or in a city and you've seen people doing like some performance in the middle of town. That's the idea of a hypocrite. It's somebody who's putting on a show, right? It's, it's, it's a play actor. And so Jesus says, why are you testing me? And why are you putting on an act? He calls it exactly what it is in this moment. And he says, show me the tax money. We're not going to go very far into Jesus' answer um, because we're going to build on that um, in a couple of weeks when we talk about um, rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and rendering unto God the things that are God's. But I'll say a couple things about them right now. Jesus says, show me the tax money. They give him a denarius. It's a coin um, that was common at the time. Um, and it's a, it's a Roman coin, uh, it's currency, and it was one day's wage. So they hand him this coin, so if you worked all day, this would be your payment for the day. Um, so that's the value of the coin. And, um, and it has the inscription of Caesar on it, it's got Caesar's name. That's what it looks like. So Jesus says, show me the tax money. So they show him this coin, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Everybody knew the answer to that. So they said, it's Caesar's in verse 21. And Jesus says to them, um, the, the famous line from this passage, render therefore to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so here's what we see, is they've asked this question, is it lawful to pay the tax money? And Jesus does not directly answer their question. He doesn't say, yes, pay the tax. No, don't pay the tax. If he had stopped with the first part, he would have given an answer, right? He would have said, if he would have just said, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's a way of saying, just pay the tax. But he doesn't stop there. Because while Jesus doesn't directly answer their question, he gives them something to think about here. He gives them the piece of information that both the Pharisees and the Herodians needed to hear. And it gives us a window into the heart of God. That even though these people were opposed to him, even though they were trying to entangle them, even though they came to him with lies, deceit, wickedness, trickery to destroy him, he still says the thing that their heart needs to hear. He still gives them the truth. He doesn't see them as his enemy. He wants them to be restored. He wants them to be redeemed. He wants them to have hope. And so he gives these men the exact answer that their heart needed to hear. Not the answer to the question they asked, but what their heart needed to hear. And you know what they needed to be reminded of? They needed to be reminded that, yeah, there's all this stuff that's Caesar's. Fine, well, and good. You guys are very concerned about power. You guys are very concerned about what people think of you. You're very concerned about your politics, and you're very concerned about, you know, who's in charge. Great, fine. There's a higher authority above all of that, and it's God. Any authority Caesar has is only because God allows him to have it. And so Jesus reminds them of the truth that they had forgotten in their own hearts. And that is that they were not giving to God the things that were God's. They were not giving God their respect. They were not giving God their obedience. They were not giving God their whole heart. They were making a show of being religious. But they were not giving God their full devotion. And in his answer, he's not dodging the question. Jesus isn't like coming with some brilliant political, you know, answer in the debate to get out of having to answer it. He answers the real question underneath of their question. And very often when we go to God and we pray, 
we may think we're asking this thing that's on the top of our mind, but God wants to work on something further down in our heart. And so when you're reading scripture and you want an answer to this thing, and you keep coming across this deeper character issue, next time, don't skip over the character issue and just look for, you know, the, the upfront issue. Maybe it's possible that God wants to talk to you about something in your heart. And maybe when you come to church on Sunday morning and you hear a message, you're like, how did that apply to me? Maybe God wants to say something that is for your heart in those moments. Although it might not be the question that was on your mind, God very often answers the question that we need answered without necessarily answering the thing that we think we want answered. And that's what Jesus does in this moment. He reminds them of the higher power and the authority under which Peter, or under which Caesar serves, sorry. And he says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God. And they heard these things and they marveled and they left him and they went their way. We'll talk more about um, the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's um, in a couple weeks. But um, here's what I would say. Don't think there's one group of things that are Caesar's. This group of stuff belongs to the government. And then this group of stuff belongs to God. It's not like there's a group of secular things and a group of holy things. A a group of things that have nothing to do with God and a group of things that have to do with God. Sure, there's things that are Caesar's. But what are the things that are God's? Everything belongs to God. Every part of our heart. Sure, give Caesar the tax money, but you know who's Lord of all my money? God. Sure, give Caesar your obedience in obeying the law, but you know who declares what's truly the law and what's truly right and wrong in my life? God. So sure, some things are Caesar's. Great. Some things are, the, are the, for the government to decide. Wonderful. But everything is under the authority of God. Amen. And when we get that mixed up, we make the mistakes that the Herodians make and the Pharisees make. We think what we want is best. We think what what we believe is best for our country is what's best. Rather than recognizing, no, God is supreme. God is Lord over all things. We don't don't shape our faith based on our politics. Our politics are wholly shaped by our faith um, and recognizing God's lordship over everything. So what's our response? We took a look at Jesus' response in this. So just a couple of notes for us as we seek to apply this in our own lives. Um, First thing is, beware the rot of envy in your life. Beware the rot of envy. Envy will rot you from the inside out. And if there are places in your life where you feel like you're not satisfied because you don't have that thing, that person, that whatever, recognize that rot. And in the places where you believe you deserve better, speak to your own heart in those moments and be grateful. Be thankful. Be kind. Celebrate for those who have things that you wish you had. Be excited for them. You can do that. Beware the rot of envy. Learn the secret to contentment, like Paul, so that whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, you know God is in it. And little is much if God is in it. And so recognize the secret to contentment. I have been in some of the most um, impoverished places in our world on mission trips with Youth for Christ and um, with New Missions in Haiti. And I have been in ramshackle, run-down huts that were filled with gratitude and joy and worship. In living conditions that you wouldn't believe people could even survive in. People are overflowing with joy and worship. And I have been in enormous mansions that I cannot even guess how many millions of dollars they spent on their flooring. In which people felt 
empty and unsatisfied. And wherever you are on the social scale, there's always somebody higher than you that you can envy and look up to and wish you were there. But guess what? They're doing the same thing with somebody further up the social scale. (laughs) And that lie that tells you I deserve better is never answered by getting better. Right? It's answered by learning the secret of contentment. Gratitude and kindness. Speak plainly. Speak plainly. Don't be like these guys. You know, use a thousand words to say something you don't really mean. Jesus just like calls it out. This is what it is. Here's the answer. So speak plainly. Be honest. Be truthful. Our nation, um, our culture is sometimes a little too politically correct. A little too worried about saying the offensive thing. Um, And sometimes we just need to speak plainly. Now, I'm not telling you go be offensive. Don't like walk out of here and try and hurt somebody's feelings. That's not the point, right? Love people, but speak truth in love. And then don't compromise what is right for political gain. Don't compromise what's right for political gain. Whatever that looks like for you. I assume um, in, a, in a congregation like ours, half of us are in one party, half of us are in another party. Um, and so I'm not trying to speak to your party or um, your leader. I'm just saying beware of your own heart um, wherever you are on the political spectrum. And just recognize that you begin to become like those that you look up to. And so pick people to aspire to who have the character that you want to live up to and don't compromise what you know is right for what you think is best. Okay, so here's a couple questions that we can ask ourselves. As you sit here this morning, all of us are attentive, all of us are watching, all of us are listening. Are you interested or are you committed? When you hear the things of God, are you like the crowd, sitting back, undecided, unsure, or are you willing to be like the disciples? Are you willing to leave everything to follow at the feet of Jesus and be, commit your life to becoming more like him? It's not a cheap thing. It's not a small thing. It's costly to follow Jesus fully. He wants to be Lord of every part of our lives. Can you recognize temptation? When there's temptation in your life, can you recognize when it's coming? Is temptation most likely to come to you at a certain time of the day? Is temptation most likely to come to you when you're around certain people, when you drive by a certain place, when you're in a certain emotional state, after a certain kind of argument? Like, what are the moments in which temptation is likely to come for you? You can learn it. You can recognize it. And then, like Jesus, you can be quick to speak truth to it and not be caught off guard by it. You can learn to recognize temptation and sin. Recognize wickedness for what it is. And then the last one, and this is the hardest one, this is the one every single one of us have to work on, is giving unto God what is God's. The first part of Jesus' challenge is easy, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, right? In my context, for my taxes, I don't even see that money. My, my uh, employer deducts it from my paycheck, and it gets sent to the IRS before I ever see it, and then I get a statement at the end of the year, and I go, oh, look at all that money I didn't get, Right? And so giving to the government the things that are due to the government in in the tax sense is an easy thing for me. But am I really giving to God everything that God deserves in my life? God deserves my attention. He deserves deserves my love. He deserves my respect. And so this is a question for each of us to ask our own hearts this morning. What are the places where I am holding things back from God, where I am not truly allowing God to be Lord of every part of my life, Sure, God, I will obey you in all parts of my life except this relationship. 
God, I will obey you in every part of my life except for this material possession that's so important to me. God, I will obey you in every part of my life except don't touch my job. That's not what it means to be a disciple. And that's not what we're called to. We're called to give everything to God. To be fully surrendered to him. And when you do, and when you follow him, you become more like Jesus. And when you're more like Jesus, you're filled with the things that Jesus was filled with. Peace. Joy. Love. Chasing those things that you think will bring you peace and joy and love will just keep telling you you deserve better. But if you pursue Jesus first, foremost, all these other things will be added unto you. And so that's the challenge for us this morning. Make Jesus Lord of every part of your life and become more like him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the example in your word. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And thank you for giving us not just good examples in scripture that we can look and say, I want to be like that person. God, I'm thankful for some bad examples too that help me check my own heart and see the things where maybe I might sometimes be like a Herodian. I might sometimes be a Pharisee. I might sometimes be a hypocrite. And in those moments, God, I want to be quick to fall to my knees to give you glory and to take those things that I've held back from you and lay them fully at your feet for your glory. Because I know, God, that in those moments when I'm holding on to those things, I'm inviting the darkness back into my own life. And I know the price that you have paid to convey me from the kingdom and the power of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son and into the light. And I want to walk as a child of the light. And so, Lord, I thank you for this truth this morning. I thank you for inviting us to become more like you. Blows my mind, God, that I could be like you. You are perfect. You are who I want to be. So God, may we follow you and become more like you as we do. In Jesus' name. I have to tell you something because this is important. We were, keep playing. We were supposed to do It Is Well With My Soul at the end of that last song before Seth went up. And I just, I don't know. I just was in the spirit of things and I totally forgot. So if you guys will bring up those words for us to It Is Well instead of God, I look to you, and we can stand together this morning. It was so good, too, and I just, I felt like we really needed to sing this song, and thank you. When peace like a river and my way, when
service and being part of this church family I'm filled with so much gratitude the fact that we have pastors that speak truth and that teach truth and Seth that message that you just delivered was so powerful and so good and I know that the Holy Spirit and God was working on the heart of Seth and for me I sit there and I think about the depth of Seth's knowledge and the time that he took to study, and at the beginning, the history and the context is so important for us because sometimes we go and we read passages that are so hard to understand, but when we take the time to study, when we take the time to give back to God, when we take the time to allow God to do the work on our hearts the way that Seth has in preparation for this sermon, that's when we feel God moving. That's when we can understand and conceptualize the history and the context so that it makes sense. So that we can take it and understand what gratitude and envy and commitment mean and should mean in the hearts of disciples of Christ. I encourage you. We have the technology now where you can re-watch this message where you can go home with an open Bible and you can look at these seven passages, verses that Seth just preached on and you can study them for yourself. And like Seth said, allow God to open up your eyes and your heart to what he wants you to see. That's good stuff. Because God's word is alive and active. That's good stuff. Pray that you do that, not just today, but every day. Allow God to do the work in your life, man. It's life-changing. Be those committed disciples of Christ. Follow Jesus with everything, fully surrendered and committed. Fully. Let's pray. God, again, I'm just overwhelmed. I am so much filled with gratitude right now. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for the praise team. I'm thankful and grateful for this church. I'm thankful and grateful for the volunteers behind the sound booth and thankful for Seth stepping up whenever there's a need. I'm thankful for the people that make the cameras work and the sound work and the volunteers teaching our kids. I'm just so filled with gratitude because I know that we are doing our best to follow you, God, because you're so worth it. And I pray that we do better. Thank you for continuously moving here in this place. But my prayer, God, is that it doesn't stop here. Let us take it out into the world and be impactful for you. I love you so much, God. In your great and precious name we pray. Amen.
It was meant to be that way. 